So your brain, their brain, exactly the same. The difference is we changed the environment. Innovation of humans allowed us to change the environment. And now we live in an environment of abundance. So you have refined foods and processed foods. The brain still relates to them the same way that we have for the last 100,000 years. But now we get into trouble because we have a unique situation where dietary excess is possible. And that's why today people are dying from diseases of dietary excess, where in the past we died from deficiency, depletion, predation. Now it's dietary excess. We just eat ourselves to death. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 48 of the Feeling Full podcast. I'm Mordecai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without going on crazy diets or without doing intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then this show is for you. Today, our guest is Dr. Goldhammer. Dr. Alan Goldhammer is one of the world's leading experts on medically supervised water-only fasting. That's right, water-only. He's a frequent lecturer and speaker on fasting, diet, and treatment of chronic diseases to achieve optimum health. In 1984, Dr. Goldhammer founded and became director of True North Health Center and has supervised the fasting and care of more than 20,000 patients. Dr. Goldhammer is the author of the Health Promoting Cookbook and co-author of The Pleasure Trap. The book is about mastering the hidden force that undermines health and happiness. I love Dr. Goldhammer's energy and passion to help people heal themselves. In our conversation today, we talk about the power of fasting, the impact it's had on so many of his patients, a whole foods plant-based diet, and how this all helps not only for weight loss, but also to help people who are struggling with diabetes, high blood pressure, and other chronic diseases. Dr. Goldhammer shares what he calls the pleasure trap and describes what it actually is, how our biology is tricking us to make poor food choices, and how you can avoid this quote-unquote trap without the use of extensive willpower and much, much more. Before we get started, it would mean a whole lot to me if you take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Not only will this ensure you never miss an episode, but you'll also greatly help with the growth of the show. Alrighty, thanks for joining and let's jump right in. Dr. Goldhammer, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've been really excited because I've been digging into your material. And um, one of the things that I discovered in my research is the True North Health Center that you started over 35 years ago is a, is a center that helps people with medical supervised fasting. And I've been into intermittent fasting for quite a while now, right. but it sounds like you are way ahead of the curve. And I'm just really curious if you can just take us back to, you know, 35, 36 years ago when you were just launching this thing, like what was your thought process? Why did you, why, what were you inspired to do it? Why were you inspired to do it? Yeah, you know, I got exposed when I was actually just a kid. Um, I read uh, a book by Herbert Shelton, and it was on uh, fasting can save your life. And it talked about this idea that health was the result of healthful living, that you could actually cause health just like you could cause disease. And that to cause health, you had to live healthfully, you had to eat well. And he advocated a, a plant food type diet, and, and you, could, you had to exercise and get activity. And you had to get enough sleep, that these were the kind of the fundamentals of health. And he also talked about fasting, the idea that in the modern world, people often got sick from certain kinds of conditions like obesity and diabetes and high blood pressure and autoimmune diseases and cancers like lymphoma. And that all of these conditions had one thing in common. They were all associated with dietary excess. And that fasting was a way of giving the body a, mo a chance to mobilize and eliminate those consequences and could actually reverse the diseases associated with that drink. And I just thought that was fascinating. Um, I met a doctor when I was about 16, just a kid, and his name was Gerald Benish. And he used fasting and diet to treat patients that had, you know, these chronic degenerative diseases. And uh, he told me that he had the best job in the whole world because the patients did all the work. The body did all the healing, and all he had to do was take credit for the good results. And I decided right then and there, hey, that was the kind of job I wanted to have. You know, I thought <laughs> that sounded great. And I remember uh, telling my uncle, who was a physician, that I was going to pursue this type of uh, career. And he said, oh, no, you're not. He said, nobody in our family will go to a doctor like that, let alone become a doctor like that. 
He said, better you should be a communist spy than a doctor like that. He was very upset. I was ranting and raving. I remember because it was my 16th birthday. And uh, my father afterwards took me aside and he said, son, you know, I don't know anything about this alternative medicine business, he says, but anything that makes him that angry and mad, well, it can't be bad. (laughs) (laughs) Stick to your guns. So I did. And, uh, you know, went to uh, chiropractic college in in Oregon and then I went to osteopathic college in Australia. Uh, And the college I went to in Australia was with a guy named Alec Burton, who specialized in medically supervised water-only fasting. And I saw hundreds of patients undergo fasting and get well. And it kind of was mind-boggling because, you know, all these people with conditions that aren't supposed to get well, for example, high blood pressure. I mean, we all know if you go to a traditional doctor with high blood pressure, they're going to give you one, two, three, four, maybe five medications. And they're going to give you a promise that if you do exactly what you're told, you'll never get well, that you'll be sick the rest of your life. They'll guarantee you that you will never get off these drugs, that you'll be on them forever. Because they know that medications that are commonly treated high blood pressure don't resolve the reason why people have high blood pressure. They're just managing the effects. They're either trying to diurese you or alter your cardiac output or affect the smooth muscle contraction, the vessels, whatever it is. Bottom line is you're still going to have the underlying reasons uh, and the underlying condition. And although it may reduce your risk, for example, of stroke, uh, it's not going to have a, a, a large effect on all-cause mortality, unless you actually do the things that it takes to resolve the problem. So for me, the interest was actually getting into why people were sick and then figuring out how to get them to induce the changes necessary to get well. That's what drew me into this kind of whole field. And it was very controversial uh, at the time. It still is, but maybe less so today uh, than it was uh, 39 years ago. Um, And so at the time, there wasn't a lot of focus on diet and nutrition. That was pretty radical at the time. Uh, even people that would go out and exercise were often looked at with kind of a strange uh, view. Uh, sleep was certainly not something that was prioritized. In fact, a lot of people became addicted to highly addictive nervous system stimulants like you know, caffeine in order to be able to continue to function uh, and, and deprive themselves of necessary rest and recovery. Uh, today, things have changed a little bit. You know, now, uh, you can exercise without being seen as kind of a strange uh, bird. Uh, a whole plant food diet is certainly uh, not as as unusual as it as it was then. Most restaurants even might have an option or two on the menu of actual food. Um, the idea that there are problems with conventional medical treatment in terms of medications is certainly becoming more acceptable. And you know, major media exposure uh, of these concepts is is definitely more so now than it had been, you know, in the last few decades. So, so high, high level for people who aren't familiar with fasting, can you just talk about some of the processes that are happening in our bodies? Even like the idea of intermittent fasting, right? Mm-hmm. Eight, eight, 16, like the common ones, sure. right? Eat, eat, feed for eight hours, fast for 16. Yeah. And, and your fast, obviously much more. Well, you know, everybody fasts every day. And they break their fast in the morning with breakfast. It's just a question of how long. And now what we advocate and what others advocate, like Walter Longo, who's published a bunch of uh, wonderful material on this, is that people extend their daily fasting to between 12 and 16 hours, depending on if you're trying to lose weight or gain weight. That a 16-hour fasting window means don't eat three to four hours before you go to sleep at night. Maybe delay your, your break fast in the morning for an hour or two so you can get some exercise in. And that would give you a period of 12 to 16 hours of fasting every single day. And even that small amount of intermittent fasting cumulatively is thought to induce changes that cumulatively are very beneficial. Now, what we do at the True North Health Center is take that very natural process of intermittent fasting and extend it. So we'll extend it up to 40 days on water only. So now this is, be, be clear, this is done in a medically supervised setting a patient's had a history, examination, laboratory, and they're, daily, they're monitored twice daily by doctors. So this is not something we're recommending people go home and fast for 40 days. But in, in a controlled setting, uh, fasting ranging anywhere from a few days to up to four or five weeks <clears throat> or longer in some cases uh, can turn out to have tremendously beneficial effects. And we've published a lot of literature on exactly this issue, medically supervised water-only fasting in the treatment of high blood pressure in the treatment of 
uh, subacute appendicitis and the treatment of follicular lymphoma. Uh, we've done fasting safety studies. We've looked at all kinds of individual conditions through case reports. And uh, recently we've completed some additional clinical trials with long-term follow-up that show number one, that fasting can be done safely. It can be done effectively. Uh, and it's been a useful tool in reversing many of these conditions associated with dietary excess. So fasting is under this definition is the complete abstinence of all substances except pure water in an environment of complete rest. So a very radical kind of intervention, but also a, a, a process that's been available and been known for, for, for uh, hundreds of years. In fact, if you go to the Bible, Moses, David, Elijah, Jesus, all fast up to 40 days. Um, in fact, I've had patients ask me that, you know, they, they, they hear that we fast patients up to 40 days. They ask if we also teach them how to part the Red Sea. <laughs> I tell them it's all in the wrist action, you know. It's, uh, well, after fasting for so long, you know, don't people start having like, can, can people hallucinate a bit? After not eating um, food? Well, if you get dehydrated, you can definitely get into, into hallucination problems. But fasting actually is a biological adaptation. The body is well-equipped to fast. In fact, all of the humans that couldn't fast died. In the world of our ancient ancestors, humans with our large bulbous neural brain, uh, net that's called the brain that allows us our cognitive capacities is you know, two and a half times larger than our nearest relatives. Uh, it's our main burner of glucose. If it wasn't for the ability to change the brain from burning glucose to burning fat, we could only go about a week and then wow. we would die, which meant all the humans that couldn't fast when spring came late died. We know that's true because today all humans can fast. All, all uh, uh, people all over the world have this automatic ability, this biological adaptation to change their main burner of glucose, which is their brain to burning fat specifically beta-hydroxybutyric acid, uh, a byproduct of ketones. And so because you can burn fat in your brain instead of glucose, you can go, a 155-pound male can fast up to 70 days. And so it allowed us when spring came late to survive long enough to get another source of food. You know, it's chimps who cannot fast. Chimps don't change their brain from burning uh, sugar to burning fat. They can only go about a week. You'll never see them away from the tropics. Right. They have to have a ready supply of food constant because even though their brain's not big as ours, they still burn a lot of glucose. And they, wouldn't, they would not be able to survive long periods of time uh, without a source of fuel. So if 40 days is the, is the, is the max that you, you prescribe, what's the, is there a lower number that like someone comes in with, with that wants to reset their taste buds, for example, or has, feels that they're addicted to food, right? I know some of your 40 days are going, you know, trying to uh, uh, tackle diseases that people are struggling yeah. with, right? So some patients, if even with intermittent fasting, can begin to have an impact on satiety and other mechanisms of control. So even if they don't do longer term fasting, they just do their everyday 12 to 16 hours fasting, adopt a plant-based diet. They're going to be able to overcome many of these challenges. Um, if you take a person, for example, that's a smoker and they want to quit smoking and they're having trouble struggling and quitting and they fast for five days, by the end of the second or third day of fasting, they're not going to have any cravings for cigarettes in most cases. So that process of withdrawal uh, from addiction happens really quickly. Uh, for example, if somebody wants to get off a high salt diet. At first, when they start eating healthy foods, the foods taste like disgusting, tasteless swill because they're addicted to the artificial stimulation of dopamine in their brain that comes from the sodium in their diet, the excess salt that's added to the diet. If you just quit, it takes about a month to neuroadapt to a low salt diet. So after a month of eating a low salt diet, people get to where their taste satiety mechanisms change. They can actually detect sodium at a smaller level. They begin to like food that doesn't have that heavy uh, chemical uh, added to it. If you use fasting though, after just a few days of fasting, good food starts to taste good. So the, the taste of the palate and the taste can neuroadapt. And sometimes just, you know, even five days or seven days, and so sometimes getting people to make dietary changes is much easier because even after a relatively short fast, um, now good foods start to taste good. You can get them to uh, enjoy fruits and vegetables and things that otherwise just wouldn't have much appeal to them uh, when they're used to the salty, fatty, sugary foods uh, that most people are living on. Got so, it. I mean, think about sugar, 150 pounds a year uh, people are eating on average. Now, that's not average. Well, you know, I'm not eating any added sugar. Somebody's eating my share too. So I mean, so people are eating a lot of this chemical and that's actually a chemical. Uh, same thing with sodium, you know, sodium's an essential nutrient. You have to have sodium to survive, but you don't have to add salt to your food any more than you have to add sugar. You have to add oil. 
the oil, salt, and sugar that you need, the essential fatty acids, the sodium chloride, um, the complex carbohydrates come from whole foods. And if you entirely eat your diet from whole foods, you get all the sugar, fat, and salt that you have to need. You don't need to add these. And when you do add these, you get artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain. Dopamine is the neurochemical associated with pleasure. So yes, it tastes better. You like it better. But just like any artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain, it can lead to addiction. Whether it's drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, or eating sugar, oil, and salt to your food, you get to the point where you not only consume those substances to feel good, but you have to keep consuming them to avoid feeling very bad because you actually withdraw from those substances. And people don't like thinking of themselves as addicts just because they're using salt, oil, and sugar. But it's the same neurochemistry that's associated with using alcohol and caffeine and drugs. It's the same attempt to stimulate dopamine in the brain so that you feel more pleasure. And the, we know there's two activities humans engage in that stimulate dopamine uh, uh, in a concentrated fashion, and those are food and sex. And it makes sense because if humans didn't like to eat, if they weren't reinforced for a feeding behavior, they wouldn't have gotten enough to eat. And it, same thing with sex. If you didn't get heavily reinforced for engaging in sexual behavior, you wouldn't engage in enough intercourse in order to ensure procreation. Can you imagine all that huffing and puffing and sweating if there wasn't some kind of feedback? I don't think so. People wouldn't, wouldn't engage in the spirit. So they're heavily reinforced, not just in humans, all, all animals we share the planet with. So food and sex are the normal natural stimulants of dopamine. We figured out, you know, drugs also can artificially stimulate dopamine. And we figured out every possible chemical to stimulate dopamine production. And we in, in, indulge in those. And we've also found the chemicals that we can add to feed to do the same thing. If you take rats and, and mice, for example, and you give them as much as they want to eat of their normal rat chow, they'll get to a certain size. You put these chemicals in their feed, they'll gain 49% of their body weight in 60 days. And those chemicals are salt, oil, and sugar. And they get fat, not because of uh, psychological reasons. It's not because, you know, mommy rat didn't love them enough or daddy rat loved them too much or they had stress from work. It's biological. Artificial stimulation of dopamine leads to a consistent overeating. And that's why people are fat, sick, and miserable, because we're caught in what we call the pleasure trap. The artificial stimulation of dopamine, because of the, the chemicals we're putting in our feed, we overeat that feed, we develop obesity, we develop metabolic syndrome, and that makes us vulnerable to dying from heart disease, cancer, autoimmune diseases, and even COVID-19. You know, what do you think the risk factors are for dying from viral diseases? are the same risk factors associated with dying from chronic diseases, like heart disease and diabetes. It's obesity and dietary excess. So all this stuff wraps together. And of course, when you really get into it, it makes complete sense. It, it, it predicts all the behaviors you see around you. It explains why it's so hard for people to lose weight and keep weight off. It's so hard to make behavioral and lifestyle changes. And yet when they do, the results are overwhelming. So I want to, I want to, just a few things I want to talk about. You've mentioned a lot, a lot of really important points. My first question is how many, how many days does somebody need to fast to actually see those kinds of resets in a powerful way? Some people will see those changes even with 16 hours a day of intermittent 16 fasting. The 16 hours a day of fasting followed by eight hours of healthy eating. Literally in days, people start seeing changes. They diarrhea, their blood pressure comes down. They're dry. If you're a male, you're dropping three pounds a week. If you're a female, about two pounds a week. Women lose about fifty percent less weight. Got it. And so, 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 so the pleasure trap. So, I, I mean, this the, the idea of the pleasure trap is 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 pretty sophisticated because I know there's deep meaning behind it. I would love for you just to talk more about the pleasure trap and how well, humans get stuck in it. Well, the pleasure trap is the hidden force that undermines health and happiness. It's why people are fat, sick, and miserable. It is the force that's the problem. And, it's, and it's all comes back to this artificial stimulation of dopamine, which is the neurochemical associated with pleasure. And, you know, it's pleasure seeking, pain avoidance, and energy conservation. Those, that's the motivational triad. That's why people do what they do. They want to seek pleasure. They want to avoid pain. And they want to do it with as little energy as possible because we evolved in an environment of scarcity. The human brain in your head today is the same brain that was in the human head of a, a human 100,000 years ago. That, that 100,000 years isn't enough biological change to see evolutionary changes. The, the brain that you have in your head was evolved for an environment of scarcity where most people didn't get enough to eat. They didn't survive to reproduce. Most humans that were born on the planet never reproduced. They never passed on their genes. They're the losers. Your ancestors were the winners. They got enough to eat. They didn't get eaten. 
They passed on their DNA and they did it because they were driven by um, pleasure to engage in behaviors that favor survival and reproduction. And those behaviors are eating and sex. They like to eat, they like to have sex, and that was driven by this dopamine in their brain that induced pleasure whenever they engaged in feeding behavior or sexual behavior. So your brain, their brain, exactly the same. The difference is we changed the environment. Innovation of humans allowed us to change the environment, and now we live in an environment of abundance. So you have refined foods and processed foods. The brain still relates to them the same way that we have for the last 100,000 years. But now we get into trouble because we have a unique situation where dietary excess is possible. And that's why today people are dying from diseases of dietary excess, where in the past we died from deficiency, depletion, predation. Now it's dietary excess. We just eat ourselves to death. Mm. Yeah, it's a crazy phenomenon. I think the idea of the, the pleasure trap also goes a little bit further, it seems. Well, it certainly does. It turns out it's not just dietary pleasure trap or drugs that can be part of the pressure. Even uh, promiscuous sexual behavior or any normal natural stimulant of pleasure in the body can become abusive. So, you know, that's why you'll see so much dysfunctional uh, behavior today because people are literally caught in this trap so, of artificially stimulating dopamine. So with technology, it's the same thing. It, potentially. So all these things can be tremendously beneficial, but they can also undermine you if you're not conscious of the negative effects of it so that you can undermine your own natural biology and that's the the, the uh, i think the real message of the book the pleasure trap undermining the how to avoid the pleasure trap how to avoid the benefits of this technology undermining your ability to stay healthy and happy how the wonderful abundance of food that's available and how to avoid getting trapped by the pleasure traps so that you develop obesity and the disease of dietary excess or if you are caught in the pleasure trap how to escape it and you know that's largely where we use fasting as a way of escaping the pleasure trap so if you can make the diet and lifestyle changes you don't have to fast because every day you're going to get healthier hopefully faster than you're getting older and sicker but if you need to speed that process up or you're having too much trouble escaping the dietary pleasure trap, then fasting can be a useful tool. Right. It's just I'm, like some people, you know, they, they drink excessively and they become an alcoholic and eventually their life sucks. And if you go up to them and say, oh, you know how your life sucks? It's because you're a drunk. They don't go, oh, it's the alcohol. I had no idea. Oh, thank you so much. I won't drink anymore. They tell you to mind your own effing business. And the same thing's true. If you walk up to a patient that's suffering from obesity and high blood pressure and diabetes and arthritis and all these unnecessary problems, and you say, oh, you know how miserable you are? It's because of what you're putting in your mouth. It's like, what do you mean what I'm putting? I'm eating a normal, healthy diet, greasy, fatty, dead, decaying flesh, highly processed, fractionated food. It's what everybody eats. 93% of calories in industrialized societies comes from meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, oil, salt, and sugar. That's what everybody eats. And so the idea that a radical dietary change is necessary to undo the consequence of excess is as foreign to some people as the idea that they have to quit smoking and drinking if they want to get healthy and happy. Mm -hmm. They don't um, want to hear it. It's really difficult. So the people that are coming to, your, to, to True North, they've, they're, they're opting in uh, uh, by themselves. So obviously, they're motivated to explore a fasting regimen. You know, they're motivated for sure because it's a really challenging thing. Adopting a health-promoting diet in a world designed to make you fat, sick, and miserable is perhaps the most difficult thing people ever do in their life. And fasting, although it, fasting in itself isn't that difficult, our patients are usually motivated uh, by the things that really motivate humans, which is pain, debility, and fear of death. Nothing better than agonizing pain to motivate behavioral changes. And when the pain goes away you know, you have a challenge because then they think, well, I'm better now. I can go back to my old addictive habits. And so it, we have to involve not only getting people physically better, we have to do intense education. So it's very much analogous to treating alcoholics. You know, some people, you just say, look, you got to quit drinking and they quit and they're fine. Other people, you need to give them a little bit of help. Some people, you have to lock them up, put them in an inpatient setting uh, under direct supervision. So to make dietary change, some people can do it just with education. Some people need a little bit of support on an outpatient basis or remotely. Some people need to stay in a facility like True North Health where they can create, an, they're in an environment that allows them to get through that addictive process. So, so can you, do you, is, there a, is there a person or a story you can share, someone who came with food addiction or struggling with you know, food-related diseases that you were able to help? 
well, sure, I can do better than that. I can tell you, I can give you, we published a study, medically supervised water-only fasting and treatment of hypertension. We took 174 consecutive patients that had developed high blood pressure, which is a leading contributing cause of death and disability in society. And we, we were able to take those 174 patients, put them through a period of fasting, followed by a health-promoting diet. And of the 174 people, 174 people were able to lower their pressure enough to eliminate the need for the medications, which, as we know, cause chronic cough, fatigue, impotence, and premature death. We have the largest effects that have ever been shown in treating high blood pressure in humans with an average effect size of 60-point reduction in stage 3 hypertensives. Basically, everybody with essential hypertension that's willing to do a fast followed by a healthy diet can normalize their blood pressure, eliminate the medication, and those that are willing to do dangerous and radical things like stay on a healthy diet and exercise program can sustain those results indefinitely. How long do those folks fast for? Those fasts range from five to 26 days in the first study, and we, we published a second study subsequently where they fasted from five to 40 days. The typical fasting patient with high blood pressure, though, will fast somewhere between two and four weeks. Depends on how much weight they have, how much blood pressure, how elevated their pressure is, how much medications we're having to withdraw. So some people respond very quickly. Some people, it takes a little bit longer. And, and what percentage of the, do you, do you track their progress after they leave? We do. Well, we, in that particular study, we had a uh, follow-up on an N of 46 at one year. And the average blood pressure at the end of the year was the same as the average blood pressure at uh, termination of fasting. There are some people, if they go back to their old diets, eventually get their problems back. Those that stay on the diet are able to maintain the results uh, indefinitely. It's like obesity. Everybody we see with obesity normalizes their weight. They lose weight. We know it's pound a day on average in fasting, three pounds a week for males in feeding. Now, if you don't eat a health-promoting diet, eventually, of course, you're going to get your fat back. So it's not like there's some magic cure here. This is always a management strategy. Fasting will normalize the pressure, but you still have to do the diet and lifestyle in order to maintain it. But those willing to do the diet and lifestyle are able to maintain it. So, but, but I think some of the, the, the food problems that we're, we're experiencing in our culture have less to do with will and more to do with our environment, right? Like you said yourself, it's like we live in an environment where things are just so unhealthy that, you know, someone goes back home after a fast, after other people are eating unhealthy at home, after your friends don't eat healthy, it's like you get sucked right back into your old reality with your old habits. All of a sudden, it's extremely challenging right. to maintain that rigor that you would have at a center that's everyone's doing this fast. Right. It's very much analogous to uh, alcoholics. If you go home and everybody's drinking, it's harder to, right. to not drink. If you're an alcoholic, you don't usually tell alcoholic, well, look, now that you're sober, I'd like you to be a bartender. Why don't you go work in a, as a bartender? Because that'll put you in a really supportive environment where not drinking will be easier. No, of course not. So the first thing you do when you go home, it just as if you're an alcoholic, what do you ask your family to do? How about not drinking around? Me? You know, if you're going to drink, do it when you're out. Okay. Let's not have alcohol laying around the house because I'm having a challenge. So I need your help. So if you're overweight and you've lost weight and you've done a, a fast and you're on a healthy diet, it's not unreasonable to ask your loved ones to say, look, you know, I'm going to try to eat a healthy diet. I know you don't maybe want to always do this, but perhaps you can be a bit supportive of me and keep the highly processed refined carbohydrates locked up in your, in your own cabinet or something. So it's not constantly in front of me. Just give me a little bit of support here. Uh, or you change your environment. You put yourself in an environment that's more conducive to healthy living. What do you tell most alcoholics? Sometimes they're going to have to make a change to some of their friends. It doesn't mean all their friends have to be not drinking, but the friends that they have have to at least be supportive of them not drinking. You don't want them to come back and constantly be browbeating them because they're not choosing to indulge in addictive behavior patterns. So it's not, you don't need all your friends to eat healthy, but you have to at least let them not, you know, to tolerate the fact that you're going to try to do so and not try to undermine your success. And because the reality, there's a lot of people out there, what I call energy vampires, and they're people that do what they do best. And that's make other people as fat and sick and miserable as they are. So by comparison, they don't have to feel so bad. And they're the people that, you know, a lot of women tell me when they go back and they've lost 50 pounds and they go back to work, they don't get support from their fellow uh, female uh, work colleagues. Some of the women will be like, um, oh, you know, they don't say, oh, my gosh, look at you. You lost 50 pounds. We're so proud of you. How can we be supportive? If you're a woman and you lose a bunch of weight, a lot of the other women are not always going to be supportive. Men have a little different situation because men lose 50 pounds and go back to work. The other men, well, they don't notice, you know, and if they do, they don't care. <laughs> so it's a little bit easier for the men than the women. 
Um, Because, you know, there's a book called Why Men Are the Way They Are by Farrell, which is actually why men and women are the way they are. And it talks about the difference between males and females. And uh, and it's politically incorrect as acknowledging the fact that there are differences between males and females in their behavior. Um, The reality is that women have a lot of challenges that men don't face when it comes to some of these related issues. We talked about the fact that women lose weight at a lower rate because they have estrogen, which is a fat storage hormone. Women are designed to store fat to survive a period of biological vulnerability called pregnancy. Uh, Men have testosterone, which is a fat burning hormone. So it doesn't mean we can't be fat if we're males, but we do have to work harder at it because men will lose everything else being equal about three pounds a week on a whole plant food SOS free diet, whereas women will lose about two. So about 50% less. So it, if you're a woman, you're gonna, it's going to take longer. You're going to have to work harder in order to be able to see, achieve the same goals because there's biological differences uh, in terms of how, and it's a good thing. Can you imagine if men had the babies instead of women? And so we had the high estrogen, our species would never have survived. And I've done the math on this. You need to have 2.1 births per couple in order for a species to sustain itself. And I'll guarantee you if men had the babies, there never, ever would have been an example of a second birth. That's it. One time, you're done. We would only had about 12 babies born on the planet in a year if it was the men having babies. And that would be completely different. You know, you talk about women in an ancestral environment having a baby and, you know, 20 minutes later, they're back working. Men, a man had a baby. That's it. Lifetime retirement. You're like, oh, tell us about the time you had the baby. Oh, my God. <laughs> let me tell you. It'd be a whole different world. So fortunately for us, women have the babies. And men don't. If you're a woman, you have to work harder to lose weight. If you're a man, it's not quite as difficult. Women have social challenges that men don't have. So, you know, it's a little bit easier. But, you know, I don't make the rules. What can I say? Have you seen things work better for women than they do for men? Any type of tricks, tips? Well, you know, almost all of the stuff seems to be more challenging for women when it comes to these health and diet related issues. First of all, the female structure is more complicated. There's more working parts. There's more things that can go wrong. Right. You know, it, it, and so I think you have a more complex organism. So I think it just inherently is more challenging. No, it's true. There are some conditions that are more dominant for males than for females. And, you know, I mean, we can go through the whole biological differences. I think what I'm really was trying to focus on, though, is this idea of weight and weight gain and weight loss and that the differences are not so psychological as biological. Got it. Right. You know, that you have you and you have biological differences. So we don't want to pretend that, you know, there, they there don't exist. It's yeah, not, exactly. So it's it's less of a willpower thing and it just it's it's biology. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, the thing is, even between individuals, some people have a very similar diet that become obese. Other people uh, don't become obese. And people say, Well, what is that? They're more disciplined. No, they have different satiety sensitivities. Some people are really sensitive to satiation feedback, other people less so. And as a consequence, you can have a similar type of diet, but have a, a, quite a big difference in what the ultimate weight balance is. So if you happen to have less sensitive satiation, what does that mean? It means you have to work a lot harder consciously in order to be able to maintain optimum weight. Because if you just eat to your full, to your satiated on highly fractionated foods, you're going to get fat. Mm. Whereas if you have really sensitive satiety, you may be able to eat some of those foods and not become obese. Not because you're disciplined, just because you feel full at an easier level. Think about alcohol. It does everybody that drinks alcohol become a drunk? No. Nope. Some people can drink alcohol and not become a drunk. But if you're a drunk, it's not you. Because if you could have controlled it, you would have controlled it. Some people can eat highly processed foods and not become overweight because they have natural sensitivity in their satiety mechanism. But if you're overweight, it's not you. And so you need to stop fooling your satiety mechanisms with this artificial stimulation from these chemicals added to food. If you eat a whole plant food diet, you will lose your weight. You will be able to maintain weight. Right. So if, it's, if someone's really sensitive to it, then having the chemicals in their food is even worse. I mean, it's it, a nightmare. Right. Because, because in a natural setting, there's no obesity. Right. So you wouldn't, right. So you wouldn't have, so the person that's really, so the person who's struggling with the weight is just really, it's more sensitive than the person who's not. It's not that. I think that's really important for people to realize because so many people think there, you know, it's a lack of willpower. I can't do it. It's my fault. I don't, I should, I should, I shouldn't. And then we can feel guilt and shame. And that doesn't really help. It's really just realizing that our biology is at play. 
you have to recognize if you are sent, if you're, and you can't change this, but if your satiation is a little less sensitive, it means if you eat those processed foods, you're going to get overweight. That's it. So the only question is how fat do you want to be? You want to be a little bit fat. You have a little bit of those foods. You want mm. to be really overweight. You just eat all you want now. And, and it's very much uh, analogous to, um, um, again, th this artificial stimulation of dopamine in the brain. It doesn't matter if it's alcohol or cocaine or sugar, oil, and salt. It's the same neurochemical kind of pathway. So in order to beat the addiction, what do you tell alcoholics? You got to not drink. What about beer and wine? You know, do you tell alcoholics, well, just have beer and wine. You won't be a drunk anymore. No, we tell them the truth. We say, look, you don't do well with this particular chemical. You need to stop it. And it's hard. It's a hard thing to do, but people can do it. So if you're overweight and struggling with weight, you need to know, okay, I don't do well with oil, salt, sugar. Okay, I need to restrain my, in my diet from eating those foods so that I don't fool my brain. Now, people understand fat because, you know, the fat you eat, the fat you are, according to John McDougall. And so they realize, okay, fat's highly concentrated. If we eat the fats, we're going to get fat. People understand sugar, refined carbohydrates, okay, empty calories, drive our blood sugar levels up. Our insulin goes up to drive the sugars down. Our brain thinks we're starving. So now we crave foods. We're craving and binging. We're waking up. We're having problems. What about salt? People don't recognize this very, they say, how could salt make you fat when there's no calories in salt? Salt's an essential nutrient. You got to have salt. People get really upset with me when we talk about restricting excess salt intake. But what happens with salt is it stimulates passive overeating. So if you just eat till you feel full of, say, rice, you eat a certain amount, but you salt it up, you'll eat more before you feel satiated. And people say, yeah, because it tastes better. But it tastes better. That's what tasting better means is more stimulation of dopamine in your brain. And so when you stimulate artificially with excess uh, added salt, you will eat more consistently than you would if you just ate whole foods without that artificial stimulation. What if you're using salt for like healthy foods, like vegetables or foods that are whole foods, plant-based? So if you're, if you're using the salt, you'll still end up eating more before you, right. with, with plant foods, you can eat an awful lot. You have to eat an awful lot just to get enough in. But because look, at salad has hundred calories a pound. So how many pounds of salad would you need to get 2,000 calories a day? 20 pounds. Well, you can't eat 20 pounds of salad. So if you were just living on salad, you'd get progressively skinnier and skinnier until eventually you depleted your reserves because you can't get enough to eat out of just salad. What about fruit? It has 300 calories a pound. Well, seven pounds a day, you could do that, but it'd be like a full-time job. You know, it's a lot of eating. But potatoes, rice, and beans all have 500 calories a pound. So you only need four pounds a day. Now, it's still a lot of volume of food, but you can do it. And that's exactly why when people eat salad first, then steamed vegetables, and then they have their complex carbohydrates, the ability to overeat is dramatically reduced. So people can eat large volumes of food, but without the salt, oil, and sugar, they don't artificially stimulate the intake as you would on these highly processed foods. Obesity goes away. The disease of dietrexis heal. People get well and healthy and happy. And then they have to decide, is it worth giving up my addiction? Do alcoholics that become clean and sober say, oh, yeah, I'm sober now, but I liked it a lot better when I was a drunk. I want to go back to being like everybody else. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Most alcoholics that actually get clean find they're healthier and happier without the alcohol than with it. When people lose the weight, they've overcome the obesity, they've overcome their diabetes, their hypertension. They don't go, oh, I was happier before, you know, indulging in all this short-term pleasure-seeking, self-indulgent dietary behavior. But staying clean, difficult. Yeah. Whether it's alcohol, drugs, food. Um, you know, same thing with exercise. People don't like exercising. If just, the first time you go out and exercise, you feel great. It's just the best thing in the world. No, you feel like crap because you're, you're, you're uh, deconditioned. But eventually you get to the point where the positives of exercise and, yeah. uh, outweigh the negatives. Same thing happens with diet. It's kind of like, um, I guess that's what keeps you going, getting up five o'clock in the morning to play basketball, huh? Well, you know, I love <laughs> playing basketball. You know, that's, that's a active, I like. it's like mock warfare and exercise all combined in one. That, that's the thing that you found something that you love doing. So you love basketball. Oh, yeah. It gets you out of bed at 5 a.m. and you're doing it regularly. How many years do you say you were playing ball for? Well, I've been playing basketball since I've been in fourth grade. So I'm 63 um so you know it's 50 some years um and yeah i, I you're right i wouldn't be probably getting up at 456 to go run on a treadmill you know that probably right. wouldn't do it for me but so you know to play basketball it, right it's so definitely i think it's worth it i think it's i think it's a combination of finding things that you love and commitment to this lifestyle 
uh, and it's it's uh, I think commitment is a really powerful point just to because it's 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 going to get it's 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 it, the waters are rough out there. It's not easy, right? And- no, no, no question. And you know your rate of aging changes though if you're on a healthy diet and lifestyle. And I mean I see the effect of that. You know, I'm playing basketball with people that are you know from late teens to late 30s, sometimes early 40s, but as they age out, the ability to engage in those types of vigorous behaviors starts to diminish. You don't start seeing you know, the older uh, people still playing because they've, they're suffering the consequence of their diet and lifestyle choice. I want to change gears just for a second here and talk about a little bit more about food because, I mean, you look like, you say you're 63, you look like you're 43, and something's working for you, and I'm really curious what. So I, I, know, you, I know you eat a whole food plant-based diet. I'm curious, did you eat meat and fish, chicken growing up? Did, what, at what point did you stop? So I decided when I was 16 years old to do an experiment, and that was to adopt a whole plant food SOS-free diet, uh, engage in regular exercise, and make sure I prioritize sleep to see whether or not Herbert Shelton and the hygienists were right, that health is a result of healthful living. So I adopted an exclusively whole plant food diet. So I eat fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds only. No meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, no added uh, oil, sugar, salt, uh, no coffee, uh, no alcohol, no tobacco, no drugs. Wow. And so I, I started early. So I've never had a cup of coffee, never went to a bar and had a drink, never, you know, never got involved in any of that, which makes it easier because I don't miss it. You don't miss, you know. If, right. if you never got addicted to something, you, you, know, you know, it's a lot. You know. No, and, I've, and I was also very fortunate because um, I married a wonderful woman who also was health conscious. So it, it makes if the family uh, unit uh, work a little bit easier there. I, li- I work at the True North Health Center where we have fabulous chef and, and crew and wonderful food. Uh, so healthy eating is the default. That's all there is at work. So, you know, food is is healthy. Um, we live on a, a two acre organic farm. So we have readily available access to produce and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we've created an environment that makes it even easier to eat and live healthfully. You know, um, uh, I, I love basketball. So I set uh, my schedule up so that I I'm able to do that full court basketball four times a week and, you know, get plenty of uh, chance there to dissipate stress and tension. And I work in a great job where the patients do all the work and the body does the healing and I get to take credit for the good result. So, you know, it's actually uh, makes it, I think, much easier for me than it might be somebody driving two hours a day to a job they hate for a company they despise for making products they don't believe in. It's constantly surrounded by temptations at work with people that are all upset all the time, having to commute, do all, I mean, I don't have to do any of that stuff. So I'm not saying it's, uh, it's easy for everybody to make these changes, but I, I haven't had patients make these changes that don't feel it's worth the effort. That's the important message. However much effort it's going to be, the return on your investment for healthful living uh, generally uh, gives you a really high rate of return. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm with that. And I think, so, so I, in my life, I fasted once for 60 days, all I had drank juice, right? Mm-hmm. Drank juice. And I think the last few days I was having some fruit, piece mm-hmm. of actual fruit. And the first time I bit into a strawberry, I thought I was, I was amazed. I think it was like day 55 or something. You're, you, it tastes just like strawberries always taste, but then you could finally detect it because your palate had been normalized. And, and it was so sweet. It was too sweet. So, I, and I started refeeding. And I did this for an experiment. I watched a movie um, by Joe, um, the juicer, the experiment, the 60 days he did. I'm like, right. if you can do it, I could do it. Let me try it. Kind of like what experiment you had when you were 16. And I lost a ton of weight. Um, in the beginning, yeah, I had probably no, what 40 pounds at least. Yeah, so. 40, 40 to 50 pounds. In the beginning, yeah. I had no energy. And first, and then after a week, my and I felt like a rocket ship clarity, focused, laser. I mean, I was, I felt like I felt like un, unstoppable. And then, but my body, I like the, 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 my, my brain felt the best it ever felt. My body, I felt like I was lo- losing a lot of muscle mass. And, I, and so I was like, I can't, cont- well, I wanted to, after six days, I was ready to eat anyways. Right. So I started refeeding and for about, I think it was four to six months, I only ate uh, uh, vegetables and fruits, kind of the diet that you're prescribing, right? Yeah. Because now I'm actually, I eat meat, some, a little bit of meat, fish, 
and I feel like I'm I feel like I'm confessing to, to here to you. <laughs> but I still I'm still not I'm not I'm not where you're at. And I'm I'm asking because I'm curious. So I went through this phase of like, and you know, the first time I ate a potato after 60 days, I literally needed a nap because my body just didn't know how to process the food. But I lost after even after starting to eat re- real whole foods, my body still didn't gain back the muscle mass. Right. And I'm and that's really what holds me back because the reason I think I eat so much protein is because I'm still on the belief that if I don't have enough protein in my body, I'm a big guy. If I don't have enough protein body, I'll lose my muscle mass. And I, I yeah. like my muscles and I don't want to, I don't want to well, be like, you know, anyways. Yeah, the reality is you have to have a, a, a healthy diet with appropriate protein. intake. You don't need animal foods in order to get that appropriate protein intake, right? You just need a, a vegetable based. What, what what, well, a side point, what, what is the appropriate protein base? In, in well, we know it depends on your age, size, sex, et cetera. But, you know, you're looking around 60 grams of protein a day, which if you ate nothing but brown rice and broccoli, you'd act 2,000 calories of brown rice and broccoli has about 80 grams of protein. There's no problem getting enough protein, quality and quantity of protein in a whole plant food diet. So the real problem is dietary excess and particularly excess fat and excess protein lead to kidney disease, cancer, and other problems. So what we want to do is design a diet that gets you all you need without the dietary excess. And the way you do that is eating exclusively whole plant foods diet. Now, just going on fruit juices and such, although maybe helpful for weight loss, may not be a sustainable long-term health-promoting diet. We recommend that, uh, you know, that you get uh, a good balance in your in your whole natural foods in order to build a sustained energy. Now, what's interesting is we've actually done a study on body composition change during fasting. And so with fasting, it's very important that people, when they're fasting, they rest. So when people are water fasting, they're not exercising, they're resting. And the reason is when you go on a fast after about two days on a water-only fast, you've depleted your glycogen stores. The only source of fuel you have now is fat, or if you make your muscles work too much, protein or glucose derived from protein through gluconeogenesis. So in order to minimize protein utilization, we have to rest during fasting. And what, what, what we've shown is that, for example, a person on a two-week fast might lose 20% of their total uh, adipose tissue, of their total fat tissue, but they may lose 50% of their visceral fat, the type of fast associated with inflammation and health compromise. And they only lose 4% of lean tissue. And that after fasting, what's replenished is muscle, protein, fiber, and glycogen, not fat. And so we've actually got, you know, now we've even done as long as 12 month follow-ups showing what happens during fasting, what happens during refeeding, what happens on follow-up. And in fact, the body composition transforms from a high fat to a lower fat. Protein is preserved and replenished post-recovery, but it does require rest during water-only fasting in order to minimize protein utilization. So these diets where they put people on high sugar diets, if the, if the caloric density is not enough to maintain uh, glucose use, you're going to get some um, breakdown of protein in order to be able to maintain uh, minimal glucose needs. Um, that can be avoided though, just whole plant food, healthy diet, and then 16 hours of fasting and then a day, and then occasional longer term medically supervised fast if necessary. Got it. And what about when you're working out in the gym and you, you tear muscles, right? You lift a lot of weights, you tear muscles and to replenish those muscles. I mean, from what I understand is you need to eat protein to a significant amount of proteins of 60. I mean, I'm, I'm averaging probably 140 grams of protein a day. Yeah. So the thing is the things you do to maximize short-term muscle bulking, uh, let's be honest. The most important thing you would do would be to inject anabolic steroids, wouldn't you? Right. You'd get testicular atrophy and you'd, you'd put your risk yourself for heart disease and cancer, but it would be the fastest way to bulk your muscles up. Not healthy way, but the fastest. Now, the next thing you can do is you can eat a lot of animal food, particularly with anabolic steroids. They're in, given to the animals that carry across. And these high fat, high protein, that's, it'll cause kidney disease. It'll cause you to be at risk for heart disease. It'll kill you. But it is the way of getting your muscles biggest, fastest. Now, you can also do it slow and steady by eating a, a, an appropriate protein-rich diet, which is going to be in that 60, 80 grams of plant-based proteins by including your lentils and nuts and seeds and other protein-rich foods in the diet. So you get a caloric dense, adequately calorically dense diet, and it will be slower. You won't be getting the steroid drugs because you, that are inherent in the animal food. So you're not going to be getting that uh, artificial stimulation, but you can still develop muscle strength, muscle mass. Now you, you probably can't compete at the NFL because you know, they're all using steroids, aren't they? You know, how many linemen do you know that are not using uh, right. stimulation. Why? Because it's really hard to get to that extreme level of athletic performance uh, doing it strictly healthy. Now, some people do, and that's great, but there's no question there's a selective advantage and a price that's paid 
for the use of drugs, whatever form they're coming in. So the question is, are you trying to maximize the amount of muscle bulk on your body or are you trying to maximize your health? And so you can maximize your health for sure with a health promoting diet. And you can still try with good training techniques and a good, a healthy diet, um, be able to maximize, you know, your physiognomy's muscle mass, but it, you have to work harder at it, no question. You have, it's harder to do it healthy than to do it quick, fast, and easy with, and like I said, that's why we don't recommend injecting the drugs either, but they work, don't they? Right. Do you, do you think that Matt, based on where a person comes from? what part of the world that would influence the diet that they should be on? Well, there might be subtle differences, but you know, our evolutionary history is a lot deeper than the last few thousand years since agricultural changes. And so the basic genetic makeup of human beings is the genetic makeup of human beings. We've modified it a little bit with disease and debility, but essentially, you know, we are uh, capable of eating a wide variety of foodstuffs. Uh, some foodstuffs will lend itself to a higher degree of health than others. All we've tried to do, we didn't come about this from a philosophical or moral right, ethical right. or spiritual argument. Now, most vegans, people that don't eat animal food, are coming from a moral, ethical, or spiritual viewpoint. They say, well, look, we have to save the planet. Animal husbandry practices are responsible for methane production. It's more responsible for global warming than, it, than the internal combustion engine. Don't eat animals because we try to save the planet. Some people say, oh, it's not nice to take sentient creatures, torture them all their life, kill them and eat them if you don't need to. So they'll argue moral, ethical, or spiritual you know, reason. That's not where I'm coming from. I'm arguing from a, just a, your own selfish health standpoint. In my experience, patients that want to stay healthy or recover their health do so better on a whole plant food SOS free diet than they do on any other combination of feeding pattern. So, you know, whether it's moral, ethical, spiritual, animal rights, or personal health, there's a lot of reasons to emphasize a whole plant food diet. And then getting rid of the salt, oil, and sugar, you know, again, most vegans are coming from these moral ethical viewpoints. They're not health kind. Oh my gosh, vegan diets can be incredibly unhealthy. Soda pop, French fries. These are all Oreo cookies. They're right. all vegan. Right. They don't have any animal nothing to do with health. Right. You, know, you go to these health conferences, I get into trouble because I'll be invited sometimes to lecture. I'll say, you're better off eating meat than some of this vegan processed crap from a wow. health standpoint. So as bad as meat might be, you know, as, it, there's even worse stuff out there. And some of it, some of what's worse is some of these chemicalized foods, but they get upset because, you know, to them, it's, it's uh, their, their motivation is different. So you want to be healthy, you have to live healthfully. And in my opinion, the healthiest diet that we can feed people are whole plant food diets, you know, uh, that are free of added salt, oil, and sugar. Yeah. I, you know, another thing that, another thing that comes up for me, and I feel like I'm drilling you here with all these questions, because I'm, I'm curious and I have something I've dabbled with quite a bit and I kind of dabble in and dabble out. So like another thing is I get veggie belly with all the vegetables. If I eat three yes. salads a day, I'm just so bloated, passing yeah. gas, not feeling good, yeah. feeling. Absolutely. And it's because you have five pounds of bacteria that live in your colon normally. And the healthiest colons have uh, as many as a thousand strains of bacteria. The more diverse your bacterial strains of the microbiota, the healthier you're thought to be. And that org those organisms, that's a lot of organisms. That's a trillion creatures, five pounds, eating, drinking, and defecating inside you right now. Oh, yeah. A trillion creatures pooing inside your intestinal tract as we speak. And what they poo in you could be TMA, which is trimethylamine oxidase, which causes heart disease and cancer, or they could be pooing vitamin K and things you need like fertilizer. So if you want your bacteria pooing good stuff in you, feed it the food that the good bacteria need, which is soluble fibers, your sweet potatoes, and your potatoes, and your starches. You want to get a more TMA, have, have at the animal food. The more higher your animal food intake, the higher your TMA production, the more TMAO you produce. So the idea is the reason why meat eaters get so much more colon cancer and have all these health problems, in part maybe because of the effect that it has on the microbiome. Microbiome also affected by the sugar you eat. People that eat high sugar diets have different microbiome than people that eat low sugar diets. People that eat too much salt have a different microbiome effect. And that microbiome affects you from diseases, including infectious diseases that people are suffering with. So, you know, the idea is that, yes, at first, when you adapt, when you change from a greasy, fatty, slimy, dead, decaying flesh diet to a plant-based diet, sure, there's going to be changes because you have to regrow a different bacterial flora, one that will protect you in the long run from disease and debility. But in the short run, you may get gas. What's gas? Gas is the breakdown of food that your bacteria are not able to break down uh, properly. So they, they'll form uh, uh, various products which cause gas. Now, you're always going to have a little bit of gas if you're eating plant-based foods. There's going to be a little bit of gas or any food. 
diet for that matter. But you'll have more when you change your diet radically. So it's nice to make a transition in the diet. It's nice to give the body a chance to get the type of bacteria necessary to digest the plant food. Or you can do a medically supervised fast because when you fast, the whole gut flora reboots. It's like rebooting the hard drive in a computer that's become corrupted. You know, you turn it off and you turn it on and you don't know why, but now it starts working better. You come in, do a fast, and then go back to that plant-based fat, and you may find much less distress adapting mm. to the, the changes. And that, that's a transient change. It, it, it goes away over time. And you can manipulate that by how much simple sugars you're eating. Sometimes if you're eating food you're sensitive to or too much uh, fruits uh, or fruit juices, or maybe you're eating, you're not processing your beans perhaps as well. Sometimes if you take beans, for example, and you soak them and boil them and drain them, then you may be able to digest them better than if you just take too large a quantity of them. So yeah, digestive distress can be an issue. Fatigue initially can be an issue. You can have all kinds of challenges making any, any type of dietary change when it's radical. And what's the, what's the time frame between the switchover? What, what, what would somebody expect? It depends on the person. Some people are quite fit and healthy. Maybe they're on an animal-based diet, but they're, you know, they're quite fit and healthy. They may cha- transition over rapidly. Some people are really sick. Most of the people I see really right. sick. All right. They got high blood pressure. They got diabetes. They have obesity. They have autoimmune diseases. Do you know with autoimmune diseases, it's particularly common. People don't even realize it, but this is where your immune system is attacking yourself. Conditions like Crohn's disease or colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, asthma, eczema, psoriasis, problems with vasculitis, lupus erythematosus. There's this whole variety of conditions that are common, but people don't realize it's all the same thing. It's their immune system attacking their body. And a lot of that's the gut leakage that's caused by the peroxidation of, you know, the free radicals that are causing the peroxidation of products in the body and cause inflammation. You get rid of that, you get rid of the autoimmune disease management as well. So people can get off the steroids and they get off all the diseases that are associated with these devastating consequences from their treatment. And that's what we see doing essentially nothing. They come in with with inflammatory disease, they fast, their pain goes away. They think it's a miracle. Then they go on this diet and it stays away. Now, then they say, well, maybe if I could have a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of this, a little bit of, and eventually it starts to come back because they're not cured, they're managed. We're not curing obesity, we're managing it. We get rid of the fat, it stays away as long as you don't go back to doing the things that cause it, which is the diet. You get rid of the rheumatoid arthritis pain. But if you go back to the dairy products or the things that contribute to the problem, it comes back. It's not cured, it's managed. I don't believe in the concept of cure at all. I think it's always management. Right. What about some of the um, vitamins that come in animal protein, like creatine, B12, carnitine? I mean, I I think those are primarily animal-based. Is that right? Well. Um, vitamin B12 is bacterial-based, not animal-based. So you find it in animal products. Why? Because there's a tremendous amount of bacterial contamination. If you take ground meat, for example, and you separate it into the the meat cells and the feces cells, you'll have a pile of meat and a pile of feces. I mean, that's every pile of ground meat. And there's lots of bacteria there, lots of B12. And that's the one nutrient that we do routinely supplement in people on strictly plant-based diets is B12, 1,000 micrograms of methylcobalamin a day. Because in a natural setting, you wouldn't have to worry about it. You'd be getting all kinds of bacteria from the bugs and the grubs and the pulling stuff off the ground. It, it wouldn't be an issue. But in our modern hyperhygienic world, where we wash and peel everything to avoid worms and parasites and disease, we don't get much bacterial exposure. And as a consequence, over enough years on a vegan diet, you could deplete B12. There's no question. That's one nutrient that... Uh, and again, it's not meat per se, it's bacteria that, that we're uh, minimizing exposure to. Other nutrients like vitamin D, if you don't get out in the sun, yeah, you can get D deficiency because you don't get that, uh, you get that normally from exposure to sunshine. But if you live really far north, you don't get outside, you know, it might be another nutrient that has to be considered supplementation. But most nutrients cause more problems than they solve when you take them supplementally. So we try to get all the nutrients from the diet as much as possible. And we can successfully do that with most of these nutrients. There is no protein, essential amino acid, or other nutrients you can't get from a whole plant food diet uh, that's better provided by uh, a meat diet. The meat diets may have more of it. It may You may be able to get more in a smaller space, and you get all those nice anabolic steroid contaminants that come along with it. But yeah, the bottom line is you can get the health, both quantity and quantity of nutrients you need from a whole plant food diet. So we advocate that. Now, can somebody eat meat and be healthy? Well, certainly. You know, question of how much? Well, it depends on the person and their health and what their tolerances are. Can people drink alcohol and still be healthy? Well, sure, there are people that drink alcohol and they still maintain level health. But every drink you have and every animal serving you have 
introduces a potential risk and threat factor. And so it depends on what you're worried about. If you're worried about the most muscle over the shortest term, animal foods may have a role. If you're worried about making sure that you live a long and healthy life and you don't find yourself unable to talk or move, lying in some nursing home bed, uh, waiting for somebody to come and change your diaper when you've stroked out later in life, well, then you probably want to minimize the amount of animal food. Mm. So you have to decide what are your real goals, right? You know, average NFL player dies in his late fifties, early sixties from cardiovascular disease, but you know, they had big muscles. So that was good. But you know, now that now they've got consequences of it. It's good perspective. It's good perspective. I haven't heard that analogy before about the three different, uh, three different ways of thinking about it, like long-term medium and short uh, long-term medium, short-term. Yeah. My patients come to me, they want to be out of pain. They right. want to have their function back. They want to be able to have sex again. They want to be able to, you know, live their life. They're not worried about necessarily maximum athletic performance typically. Okay. So, you know, the, that, the advice you give to the young athlete might be slightly different than the advice you give to the person that's mostly looking to avoid debility and death and continue to be able to, they want to be able to continue to exercise when they're in their sixties and seventies, eighties, not necessarily you know, what the advice you would give to the person that's trying to compete at what wouldn't necessarily be a health promoting level. So in other words, there's nothing about professional athletics for example, that's necessarily health promoting. These mm-hmm. guys compromise their long-term health in order to be able to maximize short-term performance. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you have to, what, what is the goal here? Yeah. Really, um, really insightful. I have a last question for you, but before we get there, is there anything else that you feel like you want to share? Well, I remember my mother when she turned 92 years old, uh, she had adopted our diet and, and she said, you know, one by one, all of her friends died. And after, and she, by the, when she was 92, all 52 of her lifelong friends were dead. And, you know, many of them used to make fun of her crazy diet and all that kind of stuff. And she said, you know, it became really hard when she was in her nineties to make new friends because even people 10 or 20 years, her junior were still health compromised. They didn't want to engage in the activities she was interested in engaging in. And she said, Alan, you have to warn your patients that if they're going to do this type of diet and lifestyle, make younger friends. (laughs) So I warn people, if you're going to do this, make younger friends, or at least find a few friends that are health conscious so that you'll have somebody left when you get older, because it can be very difficult to make friends when you get into your ninth decade. Did your mom and dad both follow this type of diet? Well, they, they adopted it very later by force. My father uh, would have serious health problems, adopted the diet. In fact, he was having PIAs, uh, had to retire from teaching, had lost cognitive ability, uh, came in fasted for 26 days, adopted the diet, and 20 years later ended up helping edit the pleasure trap. So he did wow. you know, well. He did uh, succumb in his late 80s to uh, consequences of Parkinson's disease. So he, he didn't completely escape. My mother uh, lived to be uh, 93 years old. Uh, and had a good life and a good death and, and, and went out uh, uh, in, without uh, debility. So, you know, uh, the reality is you're going to die. And the question is, how well are you going to live until you die? How long you're going to live is largely determined by genetics and luck. But how well you live in the time you have left is going to be determined by what you put in your mouth and whether you exercise and how you sleep and, and how you live your life. So it's about quality of life, not necessarily that you're going to live forever. Yeah. Well said. So, I, you know, I, I have a really simple question for you. I mean, you, you, you've been doing this for a very long time and you have a lot of insight. So I'm curious, what do you think the, like, I mean, this is obviously one of the biggest pandemics of the world is obesity, right? The way we eat, the way we're consuming food, the way we've modernized, you know, grocery stores full of fake foods, full of salt, sugar, and fat yeah. that are exactly the pleasure trap that you're describing. In your mind and with your colleagues and when you're behind closed doors, what do you think the solution to the problem is? Well, the solution is really simple. It's for people to read and understand the concepts in the pleasure trap. And so once you understand what the, this pleasure trap is, how this artificial simulation of uh, dopamine is causing this problem, you can take steps to escape it. And you can take it by changing your diet and lifestyle. And the people that do always get the same results. There's nobody I've seen in 39 years of practice, the 21,000 people that have been through our program, that don't lose weight in a, in a predictable manner. The weight comes off, and the people that are willing to adopt a whole plant food diet, the weight stays off. And it's not just the weight, it's the diseases associated with the weight, the diabetes, the high blood pressure, the autoimmune disease, the lymphoma, these conditions reverse, and we've proven that. People can go to our website at fasting.org and look at the studies that we've published. 
that what happens to people with those conditions, whether it's a case report or a clinical trial, the data is very clear and the results are very predictable. So we know what the answer is. The problem is, are people prepared to make those kinds of diet and lifestyle changes? And some are. The motivated people by pain, debility, and fear of death are, and the educated people that are looking for health promotion prevention are. And that's who we work with. I don't pretend that this is useful for everybody, but the people that either want to get healthy or the ones that really want to stay healthy, they can benefit from this information. And the information is all freely available. They can go to our, we have a Roku channel. We've got our website. We've got the videos, the lectures. We've got the books, the Pleasure Trap, also vegan SOF free cookbooks. They, they can get access to all this material. In fact, we offer your uh, listeners a free service. If they would like to have a conversation with me, all they have to do is go to our website, uh, truenorthhealth.com, fill out the registration forms, and uh, which gives me their medical history. And I will call and talk with them at no cost about whether this type of approach makes sense for them. I can refer them perhaps to a doctor closer to them that might uh, uh, use these types of principles, try to answer their questions as best I can. And so it doesn't cost them anything. Happy to do that. And all they have to do is go uh, to our website, truenorthhealth.com, and all the information is available there. Hey, one more thing before we say goodbye. My goal is to make Feeling Full the best possible podcast you listen to, and I love your feedback. If you have comments, ideas for future shows, guests, or topics, or just feedback in general, you can email me at m@feelingfull.com. You can also find out more about the show and all the past episodes at feelingfull.com. And if you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend or leave a review. Until the next episode, take care, be well, and feel full.